This episode was recorded on the traditional lands of the Gadigal and Mongol people of the Eora Nation and the Darug people of the Dark Nation. We acknowledge that sovereignty of these lands was never ceded and pay our respects to elders past and present. Welcome to A Clash of Critics, your scholarly podcast about George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. She's Mia, I'm Scott, and today we're looking at Chapter 11 of A Game of Thrones, Daenerys 2. Here's the chapter summary according to a wiki of Ice and Fire. Daenerys Targaryen is married to Khal Drogo in a ceremony that lasts all day with a dozen deaths. When night falls, Drogo takes Daenerys for a long ride before making love. <laughs> Daenerys Targaryen wed Khal Drogo with fear and barbaric splendor in a field beyond the walls of Pentos. That is the chapter's opening line, and it succinctly captures the chapter's purpose. She takes a culturally familiar and supposedly formative event, the wedding or marriage, and uses it to other the Dothraki. That is, the Dothraki are positioned as everything we, both in terms of the in-fiction protagonist as well as us, the assumed reader, are not. As such, this chapter is ripe for analysis from an Orientalist lens. In fact, as is often the case with a series that is this steeped in fan and academic analysis, we are going to walk along well-trodden terrain today. As far as I'm aware, the Notacast podcast, Stephen Atwell's blog, and uh, an academic called Matt Hardy have all already used Orientalism to analyze this particular chapter. And those are just the ones I'm aware of. So we're not doing anything radically new here, but it's a very important topic to cover. So Orientalism was introduced in 1978 as a recognized phenomenon and concept by Palestinian-American post-colonial theorist Edward Said. Said defines Orientalism as, quote, a way of coming to terms with the Orient that is based on the Orient's special place in European Western experience. The Orient is not only adjacent to Europe, it is also the place of Europe's greatest and richest and oldest colonies the source of its civilizations and languages, its cultural contestant, and one of its deepest and most recurring images of the other. In addition, the Orient has helped to define Europe, or the West, as its contrasting image, idea, personality, experience. Yet none of this Orient is merely imaginative. The Orient is an integral part of European material civilization and culture. Orientalism expresses and represents that part culturally, and even ideologically, as a mode of discourse with supporting institutions, vocabulary, scholarship, imagery, doctrines, even colonial bureaucracies and colonial styles. So, in other words, in my words, Orientalism is the production of knowledge about the so-called Orient, which typically refers to the Middle and Far East, across multiple fields and realms. So, academic, political, bureaucratic, journalistic, and artistic realms, including popular culture, and how this knowledge coalesces into sustained truths about the region and its people. These truths, in quotation marks, generate patterns of representation, or tropes, that persist in our various realms of cultural production today, including, as we will begin to unpack here and as we follow Danny's journey specifically in A Song of Ice and Fire. So Said argues that, quote, the Orient is not an inert fact of nature. It is not merely there. 
just as the Occident, which means the West, itself is not just there either. We must take seriously Vico's great observation that men make their own history, that what they can know is what they have made and extend it to geography. As both geographical and cultural entities, to say nothing of historical entities, such locales, regions, geographical sectors as Orient and Occident are man-made. So they are what we call imagined geographies, which generalize diversity and the complexities of lived experience into homogeneous knowledge about territory. They, particularly as it pertains to Orientalism, often establish an oppositional binary between an us and a them, the latter's characteristics set up as the antithesis of the former. This is what we call the other, or othering, which you can strongly argue is what happens with the Dothraki in Danny too. It is through this representational process that we see what Said means and how the Orient and the Occident are interconnected. So, Said declares this relationship between Occident and Orient as, quote, a relationship of power, of domination, of varying degrees of a complex hegemony. So, the Orientalist production of knowledge is bound up in affirming and projecting European and Western superiority in a variety of ways. So, Orientalism, quote, can be discussed and analysed as the corporate institution for dealing with the Orient. Dealing with it by making statements about it, authorising views of it, describing it, by teaching it, settling it, ruling over it. In short, Orientalism as a Western style for dominating, restructuring and having authority over the Orient. Importantly, what Said is underscoring here is the relationship between Orientalism and material forms of domination, even conquest, that it has motivated, justified, and continues to inform. So the Dothraki are a construction that draws from several steppe and plains cultures, particularly the Mongols and the Huns, as well as various Native American tribes. As Martin puts it, quote, Mongols and Huns, certainly, but also Alans, Sioux, and I did look up the, and discovered that uh, people who identify as part of this tribe prefer to be called Dakota, Lakota, or Nakota, depending on their dialects, rather than Sioux. It has this whole history as an insulting name for them. So Cheyenne and various other Merry Indian tribes, seasoned with a dash of pure fantasy. So any resemblance to Arabs or Turks is coincidental. Well, except to the extent that the Turks were also originally horsemen of the steppes, not unlike Alans, Huns, and the rest. But I can think of another reason for this coincidental <laughs> resemblance. Orientalism. Notably, these inspirations Martin identifies have been subject to an orientalized framework and or, in the case of Native Americans, similar discursive functions, which makes it difficult to separate out whether... The orientalized aspects themselves are intrinsically tied to the influences which Martin directly drew on to create the Dothraki. So without knowing these as confirmed influences, Mia, we both had interesting reads on what cultures we thought were coded into the, the Dothraki, didn't we? Yeah, so as we'll, I'm sure, talk about a lot throughout this podcast, Martin does like to bring together lots of different inspirations um, when he's writing and kind of mix them all together. And then we as readers are probably going to pick out things that resonate more with us or alternatively are things that are most legible to us, most readable to us as um, a, a phenomenon. So quite a while back, Scott and I were talking about Orientalism and I was talking about the Dothraki and Scott made a comment about 
Orientalism generally referring to these specific kinds of cultures and areas, although Orientalism as a kind of theoretical framework is applied much more broadly uh, than what Said originally was um, writing about. And I realized then that in my head, I was mostly thinking about the Dothraki as influenced by Arab tropes. That's That was what I was thinking of when I was reading it. And even though I knew intellectually there was more going on then, that's not what I felt when I read them. And Scott, you were thinking primarily about some different cultures, first and foremost, weren't you? Yeah, I was thinking, oh, I mean, uh, you always recognize the Mongolian influence within the construction. But for me, they were mostly coded as Native American. And that, I mean, it makes sense because I, unlike you, love Westerns a lot. <laughs> like they're, they're, <laughs> I watch I like a lot of them. So, <laughs> exactly. So when it comes to historical fiction set in... America's West, I have much more experience with that. So when they're describing the Dothraki as this intimidating force, like Dothraki screaming and stuff, it immediately conjures up uh, memories of like reading Cormac McCarthy's Blood mm. Meridian and all that. Yeah, so another thing we were kind of d- discussing here, and Scott, you encouraged me to mention this <laughs> in the podcast episode, is it, it made me think of Disney's Aladdin, as in the 90s version of Aladdin. And... I mean, uh, Aladdin is clearly now looking at it, this vague mixture of a bunch of different cultures, predominantly like Middle Eastern cultures and Indian cultures or kind of South Asian cultures, all together as a kind of generic otherness is what we're getting. And growing up, so I am, uh, I have a Lebanese background and my best friend has an Indian background. And I realized growing up, I always thought Aladdin was just set in India. <laughs> and my Indian friend always thought that Aladdin was just Middle Eastern and kind of just straight up a general Middle Eastern vibe. So I was like, oh, okay. So clearly both of us looked at that and were like, that's not my culture. It's it's that other culture, obviously. <laughs> so good job, Disney. <laughs> I just want to circle back to a previous point you made about how Orientalism as a theoretical framework can apply beyond mm. The Orient. There certainly are connections between Orientalism and European colonialism beyond the Orient, what we consider as the Orient. So it still is a useful framework for understanding colonialism in America and Australia and so forth. Ultimately, Said is unpacking the culture that underpins Western and European imperialism and its specific entanglements with things like modernism and enlightenment thinking and so forth. So there is certainly overlap between Orientalist discourse and other colonialist discourses. I mean, there's a reason why Said's analysis of the colonial negation of Palestinians and their paradoxical present absence in various imperialistic discourses is so easily transferable to colonialist discourses as they manifest here in Australia. We might not point to specific examples pertaining to Aboriginal Australians or Native Americans as Orientalist specifically, but they certainly share discursive functions and characteristics. This is why Said's research and analysis is such a valuable contribution to post-colonial theory. It comprehends a discursive function that varies in content between contexts, but goes to the heart, that is, to the culture of Western or European imperialism. Okay. Now, let's talk about Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> so when it comes to Danny 2, um, the language choice uh, is very 
enlightening when it comes to the Dothraki. So when Danny is perceiving the Dothraki, she sees them as a threatening, homogenous mass. So you get quotes like Seething Sea or Vast Horde. You get, uh, she sees them as uncivilized and unsophisticated in dining habits. So again, quote, they gorged themselves or they drank themselves blind. She sees them as having an unappealing or unpoetic language so that it sounds harsh and alien to her. And then the Dothraki are also dehumanized, considered monstrous and animal-like. So we get Danny's thoughts saying that the Dothraki have sex as a stallion mounts a mare, which immediately echoes how she recalls Illyrio framing it, um, who says the Dothraki mate like the animals in their herd. Uh, and then you get other examples. So she was afraid of the Dothraki, whose ways seemed alien and monstrous, as if they were beasts in human skins and not true men at all. And then describing Karl Drogo, the hulking giant who sat drinking beside her with a face as still and cruel as a bronze mask. And then it's, it's very interesting to consider how Illyrio and Jorah both function within this chapter and then Jorah later on throughout Danny's arc completely. Because they both function as white authorities on Dothraki culture. So they are always tasked with explaining and translating and preparing Danny for these uh, ceremonial moments. Authority to represent the other is a key aspect of Saeed's analysis, particularly in how it deprives the other of self-representation. So just within Danny 2, we have Illyrio explaining the next step from the wedding as the procession to Vaes Dothrak and to the Dosh Kaleen, which is most significant in terms of the limits in Danny's felt identification with or as the Dothraki. We get Danny filtering her witnessing of the sex and the violence that is happening at a wedding through Illyrio's knowledge. Quote, there is no privacy in a Kalasar. They do not understand sin or shame as we do. Illyrio also says a Dothraki wedding without at least three deaths is deemed a dull affair. As soon as Danny witnesses these things, she immediately recalls dialogue from Illyrio. Illyrio also goes to lengths to explain that the mouse skin gown is a handsome gift and very lucky. So again, translating these weird experiences to Danny to be legible to her. Illyrio also had a role in selecting Danny's handmaidens with instructions on what knowledge should be prioritized. And then both Illyrio and Jorah teach Danny the traditional refusals for the weapon offerings. Illyrio explains the significance of Silver, the horse, and Jorah advises her to ride a short distance as part of the gift giving ceremony as well. So Danny instinctively turns to them to advise on what to do as well. And this is a role Jorah is placed in often, and I really don't like it <laughs> throughout the rest of the series. But I will say it is interesting how much Danny relies upon pre-existing white knowledge structures when making sense of her experiences with other cultures. How many times will she recall some dialogue or commentary by Illyrio or Jorah as frames for her alien experiences going forward? Yeah, so... I mean, it's interesting looking at this particular chapter as our first, like, real introduction to the Dothraki uh, beyond the kind of hints that we get in the previous chapter, uh, the previous Daenerys chapter specifically, um, because we've got all of the ways that Danny is framing things in her head. Clearly, she's been led to particular conclusions and framings by the conversations she's had with the kinds of authority figures in her life, which are up until this point, white men. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit 
uh, in a little bit about the the limitations of us understanding this particular culture through a point of view chapter as we are. Um, but I also at this point just want to talk about some of the ways that Martin also leads us, and I'm using the word us very loosely here because the us here is this kind of imagined reader that's a Western reader, um, possibly a white or white adjacent reader, someone who's kind of typically the imagined audience of that particular style of high fantasy books, especially in the 80s and 90s. Um, So beyond the kind of internal monologues we get from Danny and also the literal dialogue she has with the men around her, we also get these other indicators of culture that is supposed to read to us as vaguely alien from Western culture. Um, Now, not all of them do read as alien to me because some of them are more aligned with some of the kind of cultural background that I have, but it is positioned in this very particular way. So some of the things that stood out to me was the emphasis on food and I love food writing (laughs) (laughs) and I do highly enjoy how Martin uses food throughout the series. So not just with the Dothraki, he uses it all over the place Um, and sometimes it's to create kind of vaguely medieval feeling atmosphere. Sometimes it's to indicate things like taste or class or wealth. And sometimes it's to create this kind of, oh, this is a generally alien type of culture that we're experiencing here. Because these are not the things that we're used to reading in fantasy novels as as the food. Sometimes we read it in, I think, more like the kind of epic sci-fi series, like something like Dune or whatever, the kind of things that I would be more inclined to or more likely to read these kind of descriptions in. Uh, So we've got the food, we have the language, so like the literal language from a linguistic sense, um, and then also some kind of cultural things like sex and violence. So to begin with the food, my (laughs) favourite, we have at the beginning um, Illyrio eating honey duck and orange snack pepper, which again is not necessarily a specific dish, but it's kind of giving us a vaguely East Asian vibe when we hear it. And what I found really useful when I was going through this chapter is to actually look at the blog In at the Crossroads. And In at the Crossroads is basically a a blog where they create recipes from books and and very primarily A Song of Ice and Fire. And it did actually end up being made into the official Game of Thrones cookbook, which I think it's always useful to look at how fans are interpreting particular things in the books, but especially in this, we've kind of got the endorsement of George Romano, because George Romano's like, yes, this is great, publish this as a book. So clearly the author has not been too far off with any of these recipes. So in at the crossroads for this particular dish, makes a recipe with oranges, um, cardamom, ginger, Aleppo pepper, and lemongrass. So again, they've vaguely Pan-Asian flavors. These are kind of um, spices, flavors that we're getting from places like India, a little bit China, the Middle East, like Pan-Asian. We then get the quote, they gorged themselves on horse flesh, roasted with honey and peppers, drank themselves blind on fermented man's milk and Illyrio's fine wines, and spat jests at each other across the fires, their voices harsh and alien in Danny's ears. So obviously we're getting the literal, (laughs) their voices harsh and alien, but we're also getting some more indicators of food here. So the enhanced edition of the Game of Thrones says, quote, Martin draws inspiration from our world with this drink. Kumis is a similar beverage found throughout Asia among those descended from the nomadic steppe tribes such as the Kazakhs and the Mongols. So yeah, again, we've got like a literal uh, dish that is coming through, unlike with the 
uh, honey duck and orange snap pepper. This is not a dish, but a drink that is um, actually being inspired by a, a real world drink. Then a bit later again, we have, quote, Food was brought to her, steaming joints of meat and thick black sausages and Dothraki blood pies and later fruits and sweet grass stews and delicate pastries from the kitchens of Pentos, but she waved it all away. And now for the blood pie recipe, here at the Crossroads actually adapts a Mongolian pie recipe and uh, makes it with blood sausage. So the, the pie is hushu and that's yeah a, a kind of traditional Mongolian pastry. Now, obviously, this isn't necessarily what Martin had in mind, but it has been endorsed by Martin through its publication in an official cookbook. So we can kind of see these as being legitimized in that way to the extent that we are inclined to care about any kind of author legitimization (laughs) of interpretations. All right. Um, Then we get to the language. So obviously, uh, there's this kind of narrative function of the language for Daenerys. Um, So we've got, quote, they had no common language. Dothraki was incomprehensible to her. And the Carl knew only a few words of the bastard Valyrian of the three cities and none of the common tongue of the seven kingdoms. And again, the enhanced edition here says, as with Latin, the high Valyrian spoken Valyria before the doom had spread throughout Essos. But with time and distance, it had developed into a number of dialects that were well on their way to becoming their own distinct languages. Each free city had a different dialect. So with this, we're kind of getting some vaguely, I mean, I want to say Eurocentricism, but technically it's Westerosiocentricism here. (laughs) Um, In that even though Daenerys has spent her life in Essos, she's still kind of thinking, you know, they speak none of the tongue, uh, the common tongue of the Seven Kingdoms. And why would they? Why would a Dothraki Carl know a common tongue of the Seven Kingdoms? He's not from the Seven Kingdoms. Doesn't make sense. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think this is Daenerys saying that he should know these, but it's an interesting thing that she kind of brings up to say like, oh, he doesn't know that particular way that we could converse. And then we also get the names of things. So we've got the Arax as the weapons that are the the swords that they use. And again, we've got here from the Enhanced Edition, quote, Martin had indicated that Arax are essentially um, scimitars, weapons developed and spread by horse nomad civilizations because the curvature of their blades are particularly suited to mounted combat between lightly armored opponents. Now, I was thinking about this when I saw the word Arax and also then thinking about, you know, the word Carl and Khaleesi and that kind of K-H is not really, I mean, I'm going to call it a consonant, even though we've got two different letters in the spelling in English, we'll call it a consonant. It's not really a consonant that you see in modern English, uh, except in Scottish English and apparently Scouse. I don't, (laughs) I didn't know that, but I'll trust Wikipedia on that. (laughs) So it's usually not in English languages. And again, I would say that probably it's supposed to be a sound. So like, Khal and Khalisi or Khalisi maybe as a pronunciation. So ah, um, oh, I feel like my mom would make fun of me if she heard me just make that pronunciation. <laughs> oh, when I tried to learn Arabic, she was so mean to me. <laughs> it's your fault, mom. <laughs> you didn't teach me. <laughs> and then finally, we've also got the depictions of sex and violence. So most of this is actually kind of introduced to us through Danny's perception of it, that we do also get some descriptions of, I guess we can call them like cultural practices. Uh, I was going to go more in depth with this, but I actually think I'm going to park that because what I think is more interesting for us to actually look at is how Danny experiences the sex. I, I feel like the descriptions we get in this book, there'll probably be some points in future chapters where we can really look at these descriptions in more depth. 
but I do want to raise it here as uh, a kind of cultural practice that we're being we're getting descriptions of as well as having Danny's descriptions of. We're kind of getting both at the same time and both of them are clearly positioning us as readers to feel like oh that's a bit it's a bit different makes me a little bit uncomfortable maybe as a reader I think that's the kind of implied thing that's happening for us as readers so we're definitely going okay different culture <laughs> it's always what we're reading about and that's very much the why the why orientalism is a really important framework for us because we're not talking about necessarily literal practices or literal like realities so much as the way it becomes grouped together and framed and understood from a Eurocentric or Westerosi-centric or implied Western perspective. So on that note, let's talk about the sex scene in this particular chapter. So before I actually dive into the sex scene, I do want to point out that I find it really interesting that Illyrio and Viserys personally select three handmaids for Danny. And we get two that are, quote, copper-skinned Dothraki with black hair and almond eyes. And their jobs are to teach Danny to ride and also the Dothraki language. And then we get a, quote, fair-haired, blue-eyed Lysine girl who was intended to teach, quote, the womanly arts of love. So I think this is really interesting to think of, especially Viserys. I think this is really indicative of what Viserys thinks um, appropriate sex is appropriate ways of interacting in an intimate way with someone else is is this kind of and we're talking about white in a very generic way here because obviously there's all different kinds of cultures in Westeros and Assos but it is important I think to note here that these are the roles that Viserys has decided is appropriate for these three different handmaids to have in Daenerys's life and also interesting to think that if he wants to Daenerys to please the Carl as he blatantly does, and we will have a lot to say about Viserys' relationship with Daenerys in that regard. Um, it's interesting that he thinks that the best way to do that is to have her have sex as uh, a Lysine girl would, as opposed to um, a Dothraki woman would. It's also very interesting and in just how clear it establishes some of the knowledge that's respected among the Dothraki that they mm. have expertise at, obviously the language, but also writing, but then the knowledge or the practices that are mm -hmm. looked down on, which is very clearly the way they have yeah. sex. I mean, the clear thing we're getting with the Dothraki is that the way they have sex is barbaric. That's a clear message we're supposed to get as readers. And I'm sure plenty of readers are reading, maybe not literally everything, because there's some absolutely, like, there are definitely some um, ways that consent is not able to be adequately given throughout the Song of Ice and Fire in the context of the Dothraki. But with some of the things that we're reading, I'm sure readers would be like, no, that's how I have sex. <laughs> why is that weird? Why is that better than, or sorry, why is that worse than how this Lysine girl is going to be able to teach it? So, but yeah, we're definitely being led to believe that um, Dothraki sex is barbaric. And that is drawing on a, a long history that I will get to in just a moment. But first, let's talk about the scene itself. So we've got Khal Drogo only potentially, when not confirmed, but potentially only being able to say the word no. That's the only word that he knows in a language that Daenerys can speak. 
so then we get Khal Drogo wiping away Daenerys's tears. Uh, there's a lot of warmth and tenderness in his tone. I quite like this part where he's kind of indicating for her to help him undo his braid. I'm like, that's that's a very sweet romantic like moment between a newlywed couple. We do also get that quote of her describing the hair. So she's never seen hair so long, so black, so thick. Again, kind of just reinforcing the otherness of Khal Drogo. And the word no becomes a common language between them. They use no as a way of kind of negotiating this scene and this act between them. And I think if this scene could be consensual, and it can't be because Daenerys is one, too young, and two, being essentially sold to Khal Drogo and clearly expressed that she did not want to marry him, um, like outright said that. So it can't be consensual. But if it could be, potentially this would be Martin's best written sex scene maybe with some big caveats that I will get to in a second but it's actually pretty well this is not the Martin I remember when it comes to sex scenes I'm like oh this there's some like very kind of good central writing happening here not what I remembered Martin for yeah I just want to emphasize that point you made about how it can't be consensual and that's really reflected in Danny's language throughout this chapter too not just in the previous uh, previous point of view chapter where she's like, I do not want to marry Khal Drogo. Like, that continues on here. And there's a very clear sense from Danny that he, she is definitely being sold in those terms. So there's the quote, Danny had been sold to Khal Drogo and it was a truly magnificent gift. Though she knew Illyrio could afford to be lavish, he had collected a fortune in horses and slaves for his part in selling her to Khal Drogo. And I mean, besides that quote, emphasizing once again that Danny is observant, not merely subservient in mind and body to her brother's demands and not forgiving of Illyria for his role in it, which I really like. It clearly highlights Danny's sense of being enslaved and deprived of options. Ergo, consent cannot exist, whilst also continuing that thread of Danny feeling like she can relate to other slaves because of yeah. these experiences. The reason that I had a caveat to how this would be a great, certainly by Martin's standards, a great sex scene if it was consensual, is the the kind of history of sex scenes that it's drawing upon. And that is specifically um, the tropes of the desert romance uh, from romance novels. So this kind of has come up at different points, but it was really notably repopularized as a as a trope by E.M. Hull's 1919 novel, The Shake. So the protagonist of The Shake, Diana, she is uh, against her will, enters a kind of sexual relationship. Relationship isn't the right word here, but it kind of we're led to believe it's a relationship because by the end, it's it is it's great. The, all, he, he does literally rape her and not in a way that we as readers go, oh, that was rape, but in a way that you're supposed to understand is rape even according to the author clearly. But then it all kind of gets recontextualized later as it's fine because they ended up in love or whatever. Diana also is given a beautiful grey thoroughbred called Silverstar because the Sheikh does like to go riding with his horses and horses are a big part of that. So I'm like, okay, <laughs> there's a thing here. <laughs> uh, but more broadly, um, this is a type of, of romance. Like the desert romance really became big in that kind of early 20th century. And there are some themes that come through in these desert romance novels. So you've got Arab men 
who are violent and wild and frightening, but also sensual and gentle. And the heroines are fragile and feminine victims and white, always white, but they're also sexually empowered through their experiences with this scary but also gentle man. And then a big part is also like these men are are really powerful, often physically powerful and also politically or economically powerful, but they can be tamed and you get a lot of imagery of them being tamed like beasts. And as I noted, these stories also often include sexual violence and rape as plot points. And then those plot points are often either forgiven or recontextualized later in the story. So we can kind of see in these stories, like if we're using an intersectional framework, we have both the violence against women in these stories, but also that kind of becomes crossed and intermingled with the racism of this like savage barbarian portrayal. So it's quite a complicated mixing of issues in these particular romance novels and this is not to say that Martin is exactly doing this but there is a type of writing that has then become a part of fantasy genres in particular from this romance history uh, and that is the history that Martin is consciously or not writing into. So this this whole uh, conclusion to the chapter is interesting to me because I can see how Drogo's surprising tenderness and warmth is perhaps designed to undercut the previous othering when Danny is literally and figuratively looking down on the Dothraki. But it is apparently inconsistent with the subsequent chapters, which revert to the rape tone we are familiar with in the show. Even though I've reread this story twice, I don't really remember how this pans out going forward, whether it does become more rape in tone. But the foreplay definitely disappears. There's no more foreplay. That's all Danny gets. And this is what makes this chapter for me and the overall presentation of the Dothraki so frustrating or disappointing. There is so much potential to use these tropes in combination with Danny's unreliable narration as well as her reliance upon existing white knowledge lenses to make sense of cultural difference and experience there's potential to use all these things in combination in interesting and constructive ways Uh, we get small hints alongside uh, drogo's behavior at the end that the dothraki are more than their othering suggests i mean the whole thing with the manse where it was so strange to see Carl Drogo in that setting where he has this sort of fixed space that is his possession, which is not something you would think that he, as a powerful Dothraki leader, as a Carl, would value at all. And then he does use it constructively by handing it over to his bride-to-be and her family because that is more, you know, what they're used to in terms of space. And then you get that very small hint of they've quite adaptable when it comes to visiting the free cities where they do don rich fabrics and sweet perfumes when they visit the free cities so that tells me that there is more going on with the Dothraki than just being savage barbarians as they initially appear in in Danny's eyes and now framed in Illyrio, Jorah and Viserys's uh, comments and it is all the more frustrating because we know Martin can do this he he can use these tropes constructively because he does it so damn effectively with the free folk the free folk are not one homogenous mass culturally with 
you know, the significant variation between different groups of the wildlings. And we are introduced to a range of figures that are fully developed as individuals with their own personalities and interests and values and beliefs. So we have Igrid and Tormund and Mance and Val, Gilly and Osha. And I'm just naming the ones we're supposed to like in the story. There's plenty we're not meant to like either. And this is achieved without even writing any point of views from the standpoints, except for one prologue chapter for a character I did not just name. I would argue that we have no equivalent figures with the Dothraki, except maybe Drogo himself, nor among the Unsullied in the future, certainly not any of the Giscari. And this is partly why I gravitate more toward Jon, despite Danny being very clearly a more interesting character herself. <laughs> like everything else that's happening around Jon is just, I think, so much more considered. And I am interested in Danny's chapters. And as I have said, I am curious as to whether a lot of the issues I have had maybe by design and intended to be constructive down the line, given how she ends up in the show. But this particular issue is something I'm relatively confident, unfortunately, will persist and not really be capitalized on, though I do hope I'm wrong. We are barely encouraged to perceive the Dothraki beyond the flat archetypes we are provided from Danny's point of view. So I just had some thoughts I wanted to park well, more to keep in mind as we continue following Daenerys to via Stothrock and then into the Red Waste and so forth. Just to sort of signpost how we think about Orientalism as it goes forward. And one thing I wanted to be mindful of is to what extent is Martin explicit about the racial aspects of certain cultures? You know, are the West Coast cities of Essos white in the books, whereas they are in the show? Are the Dornish olive-skinned? Are the free folk white? Grey Worm is ambiguous in his racial and cultural background by design, apparently. So we just need to be mindful of conflating the show's representation with the books. And if we've already made some mistakes in that respect, well, I mean, we're rereading for a reason. Some of this stuff is going to surprise mm. us. Although it is also important on that note to recognise that a character doesn't have to be a particular, like inspired by a particular race or ethnic group or culture for it to play on tropes that have come from Western representations of that race or ethnicity of culture. So, you know, a character can be technically white or maybe not confirmed to be not white while still playing on racist tropes of non-white people. And then as regards the role of Orientalism in Danny's journey. I mean, she does run through the gamut of tropes. There's the barbaric animal-like horde that she hangs out with uh, in the first book. Then there's the exotic and mystical and treacherous <laughs> oasis city in Calf in the second book. And then the third and fifth books, uh, she's spending a lot of time in despotic and decadent cities in Slaver's Bay. So each of these experiences are preparing or failing to prepare her for her eventual invasion of Westeros at the consequence of predominantly brown bodies. And again, it was in the show. It might not necessarily be that uh, in the books. But again, like you said, with tropes, they can still circulate. And then there's, of course, Dawn, which is the most orientalized kingdom within Westeros, who I think are going to have a very bad day when, Dan <laughs> when Daenerys arrives in Westeros. So just trying to be mindful of how constructively these tropes are being deployed to get us to that fatal and tragic endpoint with Danny's story. Just because the tropes are present in the books does not necessarily mean Martin's not doing anything with them. That's the thing I'm most interested in keeping an eye on as we go forward. 
And that's it for this chapter. We'll be back soon for a Game of Thrones Chapter 12, Eddard 2. Or if you're a patron, join us for our Little Birds mini-sode over at Patreon, where we will discuss Daddy's first beat of Dothrakiness with Silver. If you enjoyed this episode, consider pledging to our Patreon at patreon.com slash tropewatchers. Pledges start at a dollar a month and help with our ongoing running costs. If you don't have cash to spare, you can also support us by rating us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Or send us to a friend who you think would enjoy the podcast. If you're a fan of A Clash of Critics, be sure to tune into our flagship podcast, Trope Watchers, the podcast about pop culture and why it matters. Our website is tropewatchers.com slash A Clash of Critics. We are on social media at A Clash of Critics. And you can email us at A Clash of Critics at gmail.com. See you next time.